I'm Rick Herman, the director here, and it's uh, great to see you all, so many on the first Friday of the fall quarter. And it's especially nice to be able to introduce uh, Bob Pape, who I've known since he was an undergraduate student in one of my classes and has gone on to great things and done uh, well. He's obviously, well, obviously, but I suspect all of you know, he's a professor at the University of Chicago where he specializes in international security affairs. Uh, he's working currently on American Grand Strategy. He's also worked in the past on causes and solutions to suicide terrorism and the logic of soft balancing. He's also studied uh, the effects of bombing. He's written uh, books that many of you I know have read, uh, Dying to Win, uh, The Logic of uh, Suicide Terrorism, and Bombing to Win, <laughs> Air Power and Coercion. Or Bob likes to win. <laughs> uh, he's written in the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, as well as the journals, the American Political Science uh, Review, and so on, International Security, Foreign Affairs. He's been on CNN. And today, uh, we're going to have this filmed uh, for television. So when we get to the questions and answers, uh, we'll have someone running around with a microphone, and we'll ask you to uh, put your questions on that microphone. But without further ado, I'd like very much to welcome Bob Pate back Thank to Mershon. So Good to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's a great... Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here, and I love coming to Mearshawn. And part of the reason is Rick. Uh, Rick is responsible in no small, small way for me being in the business. Um, I was 19 years old at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, I was not a declared major on anything, um, and it was right at the, it was the winter when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. And I decided to take a course on sort of Soviet foreign policy, dot, dot, dot. And uh, I heard about this kind of hot shot <laughs> graduate student uh, who was going to teach the course. And I thought, okay, I'll go and see what he's got to say. Um, and he starts the class. Uh, he hands out a syllabus, and he starts the class. And he says, you know, one of the things that's uh, the most difficult about teaching this class right now with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is, yes, it's very prominent, but almost everything you're hearing in the New York Times is wrong. <laughs> Sure enough, that was enough of a hook to get me to come in. And over the next few weeks, I became persuaded that actually knowing something about how international relations works, how the Soviet Union operated, and actually the psychology of deterrence uh, turned out to be very, very important. And that was one of the things that really encouraged me to come into our field. Uh, anyway, I also appreciate all the other folks who have come here today. So thank you so much for coming to my talk. Um, I very much look forward to uh, uh, all the Q&A, and I'm sure that it will uh, be uh, the usual ferociousness that we've all come to know and love from you. American foreign policy is heading for hard times, but there's great confusion about why. Since recent challenges have involved our friends not supporting us, say Europe on Iraq, or rivals pushing us around, say Russia or Iran. It's hardly surprising that our current American foreign policy debate is between doves who prefer multilateral soft power diplomacy versus hawks who insist on unilateral hard power approaches. However, today's challenges are not rooted in leadership style, but in the new realities behind America's diplomacy. Over the past decade, the world balance of power has been undergoing a fundamental transformation uh, 
This began in the early Bush White House years and has been wreaking havoc on America's grand strategy around the globe ever since. To explain this new reality, I want to discuss America's position in the global balance of power, how it has changed since the end of the Cold War, and how those changes are likely to affect America's grand strategy in the future. The argument I'm going to make today is simple. America is undergoing an unprecedented relative decline. Although the United States has suffered economic recessions and even the Great Depression since the year 2000, notice I didn't say 2008, <laughs> since the year 2000, the United States has lost more strength relative to other nations than most likely any other point in our history. Indeed, if present trends continue, the era of American hegemony that we have enjoyed since the end of the Cold War is not likely to last long, and the United States may have little choice but to make fundamental changes in our foreign policy commitments. Well, now that's quite a mouthful. <laughs> Anyone hearing the prediction of the end of unipolarity could easily be forgiven for having more than a touch of skepticism. Indeed, before doing the research that I'm about to show you today, that I published as an, academic, or as an article uh, about six months ago, I would have shared your skepticism. And why is that? You see, in my lifetime, I have been through not one debate on America's decline, but two. <laughs> in the 1980s, there was a very prominent debate triggered by Paul Kennedy, his famous Rise and Fall of Great Powers, came out in 1987, that said America was in great relative decline, and oh my God, watch out for the Soviet Union and some other states. Well, what then happened in 1990 and 1991? The Soviet Union collapsed. So much for that debate. <laughs> then, in the early 1990s, debate number two. From about 1992 to 1995, really prominent IR scholars, folks that I assume many of you have read, Ken Waltz, Chris Lane, and others, were predicting the quick rise of other major powers to challenge the United States. Well, as the 1990s went on, what happened? American power didn't go down, it actually went up. And you'll see some of those numbers, that's actually true. Um, and in fact, myself, like I suspect a lot of you at that point, stopped following the debate. I mean, after you've been through this twice, right? Um, you stopped following that debate. Um, and in fact, when I teach, I actually still like to use those old 1990s articles, uh, which now you'll see I can't use any, quite use anymore. Um, but the fact is, about a year ago, the National Interest asked me to uh, start out as a book review, uh, to review a, a book that was coming out, and it caused me to go back and relook at some of this uh, information. And I was really quite stunned with what I found. It caused me to change my mind, and I don't know if it'll cause you to change your mind or not, but I'll show you what led me to change my thinking, and then you can, of course, make up your own mind. Now, since the end of the Cold War, the United States has been widely viewed as a global hegemon. When the Cold War uh, ended in 1990, the United States had a vast array of overseas commitments in Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. And although there was some talk of pulling back in the 1990s, the fact is that since 1990, the United States has expanded those global commitments across the board. 
We've expanded NATO in Europe several times, first to Poland and other Eastern European states in the 1990s. That's under Clinton, by the way. Uh, and then Bush moved to expand NATO to Ukraine and Georgia, effectively expanding American dominance right up to Russia's borders. Uh, we've expanded overseas commitments in the Middle East, uh, first to the defense of Kuwait in the 1990s, and now, of course, with the conquest of Iraq and Afghanistan. And we also have expanded our influence in, in, in Asia, not just supporting Taiwan, but assertively pressuring North Korea uh, to end its nuclear program, again, starting under uh, Clinton, and also many have hoped to topple the North Korean regime. Now, any of these global commitments would be a major challenge, but notice how we've done them all more or less simultaneously, doing them all at the same time. Why was this possible? Well, although some thought that each of these individually might be a mistake, the fact is those critical voices lost out in each and every one of those policy debates. Both Democrats and Republicans helped to expand the commitments I just named. Why, why is that? Well, a key reason is the faith in the unipolar dominance of the United States. Since the end of the Cold War, many have believed that the United States is a global hegemon, far superior to any other state, and effectively able to do as we wish, pretty much whenever and wherever we wish. And others, they can complain, they can nip at our heels, but they really can't stop us. And although there are many versions of this argument, some conservative and some liberal, the members of what you might call as a group, the unipolar dominant school, make two key arguments. First, they argue that the United States is the only truly global superpower, the only state able to project powerful military forces into any region of the world. And this is largely due to the fact that the United States spends more money on defense than any other state, any other major power, for sure. Indeed, with the growing costs of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, in 2006, America's defense spending, as a share of all major power defense spending, that is, as a share of the group of America, Russia, China, Japan, and all European states, America's share of that group was 60%. <laughs> Think about that for a moment, 60%. Now, the school also makes a second and far more fundamental, powerful argument that the unipolar dominant school believes that America's economic strength is far greater than any potential rival, with a much larger gross domestic product than Russia, China, Japan, or any state in Europe. Now, this second argument is the bedrock, the Sunday punch of the unipolar dominant school. Yes, at any given moment, American power is heavily dependent on the size of our military forces and our intelligence systems and other current power assets. But a successful grand strategy has to work for the long haul over time. And so it depends on the power of a state to generate military capability into the future. And over time, America, American power is fundamentally a result of its economic strength. Productive capacity, 
defined by indicators such as wealth, technology, population size, is a prerequisite for building and modernizing military forces. The United States, like any state, may choose to vary the degree to which its productive capacities are used to create military assets. But the size of the economy ultimately constrains that choice. And so the size of the American economy relative to others is what ultimately determines the limits of our power in the international system. This is why major assessments of America's or any great power's relative position have largely turned on one statistic. I don't mean to say this statistic is the be-all and end-all of international politics. Please don't get me wrong. But one statistic, just one, is of seminal importance. And that is America's share of world economic product. Advocates of extending America's unipolar dominance have long been well aware of the central importance of the economic foundations of America's power and routinely present detailed statistics on America's share of world product. And when I say advocates of extending America's unipolar dominance, I don't mean the Bush administration. I don't mean Paul Wolfowitz. Yeah, they, they were there. Uh, I don't mean uh, just pundits like Charles Krauthammer. I mean nice liberal academics who have also uh, supported uh, this particular argument. And most recently, in fact, just last summer, the summer of 2008, the most recent, I think probably the most famous book in our field to be published in the last uh, at least one year, probably several years, uh, the book by Brooks and Woolforth, World Out of Balance, which many of you have probably read, makes exactly this argument. And let me just show you their core argument in the book. And again, these are not conservative Bush administration appointees. The United States can push hard and even unilaterally for revisions in the international system without sparking counterbalancing, risking the erosion of its ability to cooperate within international institutions, jeopardizing the gains of globalization, or undermining the overall legitimacy of its role. Now, why do they believe that? Well, their argument turns on one powerful statistic, <laughs> okay? This is the centerpiece, the Sunday punch, okay? This is the percent of gross world product they put out in the book, okay? This is, they do it in current prices. I'm gonna talk to you about those statistics, how they're calculated in a moment, so just put that aside for a second. But look at their argument. Look at the evidence for their argument. Look at the United States, 27.5, 28%. Our nearest rival, actual rival, China, 5.5, 6%. Everybody else under 10%. Man, oh man, does that look good for us or what? <laughs> okay. there is, this is what's behind the unipolar dominance school. This is why Democrats in the Clinton administration, this is why Republicans in the Bush administration, this is the reality they thought they were dealing with, and this is what Brooks and Wolfworth think they're dealing with. Now, alas, single-year snapshots of America's relative power are of limited value 
in assessing the sustainability of its grand strategy over time. For grand strategic concerns, especially how well the United States can balance its resources and overall foreign policy commitments, it's the, tra it's the trajectory of American power compared to other states that's of seminal importance. Now, just for the sake of argument, and we'll vary this down the road, let's start with their favorite indicator. Let's start with how they measure it, America's percent of gross world product in current prices, and we're also going to use the IMF website that they use to calculate this from. And now let's just look at the trajectory of American power over time. Again, this is their favorite measure. Now look at the top line, the United States. We start out with a quarter of the world's product in 1990, and then look at 2000. It does go up to 31%. Man, it's no wonder we look like a strong, growing hegemon, because we are. But now look, let's look at what happens from 2000 on. From 2000 on, we are in precipitous relative decline. We drop from 31% down to 23%. And as far as the IMF can see out to 2013, it looks like we're going down to 21%. That is a drop of 32%. And as you're going to see when I show you some other statistics down the road comparing it to other declines in history, that is amazing. <laughs> that is an amazing decline, especially over just 10 years. Um, and it's probably only, only um, uh, the only decline that's even close to that in relative terms was probably the collapse of the Soviet Union itself, certainly among major powers. And now look at what's happening with China. As we're declining, look at what's happening with China. China's going from basically nothing <laughs> in 1990, and it is growing and growing fast in terms of its relative economic position. That is... Um, as far as we can see, the United States has started the first decade of the 21st century not stronger than before, but substantially weaker. Now, how good are the numbers? Well, as I'm sure many of you know, economists commonly use two other measures of GNP, uh, constant dollar measures, which control for inflation, and PPP, purchasing power parity. That's sort of like the favorite uh, high-level, sophisticated statistic uh, uh, for folks, uh, say, in the World Bank and so forth. Let's look at those numbers and see um, uh, what they show. Uh, this, again, is share of world product. And as you can see, whether we use constant dollars or whether we use purchasing power parity, we get the same basic trajectory. We get the same basic picture. And we get the same basic picture across the board. That is, what this shows is, even if we use the other measures, this is the lower bound on what our decline is. That is, even if we look at the lowest bound that we would reasonably measure, we're still in a dramatic relative decline in the last 10 years. The truth is probably somewhere in between the um, current dollar number and the constant dollar number. Simply put, the United States is now a declining power, and this new reality has tremendous implications for the future of America's strategy. 
Now, why the decline? What's been happening in the last 10 years? Well, obviously, growth rates must have something to do with this, um, and in fact, they do. Let me show you the annual growth rates in constant prices, controlling for inflation, uh, for uh, the key periods, that is the eight years under Billy, under Clinton, and then the eight years under Bush. And what do you see? You see that the United States has been growing at only about two-thirds of the rate <laughs> that we did under Clinton. Substantially, yes, we've had effects of growing debt, coming, which are coming from tax cuts, plus the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and those are dragging down America's growth. Um, and you can see that China has been growing at an extraordinarily constantly high rate. Uh, I find this really quite, I found this really quite interesting with China because I'm sure many of you get The Economist. And right around August, almost every year, you'll find a survey on China's economy. And I've been reading these for years. And almost every year, in the last 10 years, the survey says, well, China's been growing at 10% a year for the last umpteenth number of years, but this year's going to be different. <laughs> this year it's going to be down to 5% because there's this problem and that problem and this problem and that problem. And then, son of a gun, <laughs> it turns out they click ahead at about 10% again. Uh, China just simply has been growing at an extraordinarily phenomenal rate, and it's been doing so for now quite a long time. So, one reason is because of the bad policies or the policies of growth under the Bush years. Second reason is China's extraordinary growth. But there's a third reason that has um, affected this decline. And that, whoops, um, oh, I'm sorry, I wanted to also talk about whether or not uh, these rates are going to continue into the future because, of course, in the last year with the, uh, uh, the big shock of the Great Recession, many might wonder, oh, what has what, what that meant for our growth rates? Um, and if we look, again, using the IMF website and looking at their most current numbers, were just published in uh, July, we can see that uh, this is the annual uh, percent change uh, for the key countries that we care about, 2007 and 2010. And it's not the case that we're all going down at the same rate or all going up at the same rate. And it's not the case that the last year has washed out all the effects of the last uh, 10 years. Uh, the fact is... Uh, uh, in 2009, China is growing gangbusters again. Um, and uh, if you look out to 20, 2010, you can see that a number of other states are expected to grow faster than the United States, including even Russia, including even Russia. Um, and so what I'm afraid the pattern I've been showing you certainly isn't about to reverse itself in anything like the next year or two. Um, but what's another reason for this decline? I've talked about uh, the Bush growth rates, China's growth rates. There's also just the diffusion of technology. One of the key things that's been occurring in the last eight years has been the extraordinarily rapid diffusion of technology. Um, and uh, those of you who know something about diffusion of technology over time, I don't know if you know David Landis' famous study, Prometheus Unbound, uh, but he looks at the diffusion of, say, the first industrial revolution, the second industrial revolution. Um, diffusion often happens. Across, international diffusion often happens. But it's usually measured in, like, 30-year periods, 40-year periods. Look at what's happened to the microelectronics revolution just in the last 10 years. Uh, this shows you computer sales. And just look at what's happened in China. Internet users, look at what's happened in China. Broadband subscribers. Now, remember, China has four times the population of the United States. 
it is not going to be long before China has many more information workers than the United States. Look how closely they've caught up. And that's just occurring basically across the board. And it's one of the fastest diffusions of high-level technology, uh, probably the fastest that we've um, ever seen. Now that I've given you some of these basic reasons, somebody might ask, well, what's the relative weight? How much should we blame bad Bush policies, China's extraordinary growth, uh, and the diffusion of technology for the decline that's occurred? Well, um, again, with this great IMF website, <laughs> we, which I've now turned to, I like it so much, we're going to use it as a model for a suicide terrorism database that's going to come out pretty soon. Uh, you should go to it. It's really a great tool. It doesn't, it's not a five-minute tool. You have to spend some time on it. Uh, but it's really a, an awesome tool because it allows you to do some pretty straightforward counterfactual analysis. Now, counterfactuals are fraught with problems. They, they don't take into account a whole myriad of interaction effects, of course. But they are very interesting kind of first approximations, back of the envelope um, uh, studies. And again, the IMF website allows us to do some pretty straightforward and quick counterfactuals. So what if the United States grew under Bush at the same rate as under Clinton? Well, in that IMF website, we can plug in those numbers and then just run the whole rest of the world. And it turns out that if you do that, we would have grown or gained about 2% more world product, pretty good chunk, and that would have accounted for about 27% of our decline, or about a quarter. Now, what if China did not grow from 2000 on, just sort of flatten out China from 2000 on? It turns out that the United States would also have gained, if we hold others down, we gain relatively, okay? we also would have gained just over 1% of world product, counting for about 15 or 16% of the decline, which means that nearly half of the decline we've experienced is due to the global diffusion of technology, about a quarter to Bush's bad policies, about a sixth to China's extraordinary growth, but over half to the global diffusion of technology. So yes, self-inflicted wounds under the Bush administration did significantly exacerbate America's decline, both by making it steeper and faster and by crowding out other productive investment that would have stimulated innovation to improve matters. But a big decline in U.S. power would likely have occurred anyway. Now, what are the consequences? What happens when there are big declines like this? Uh, well, let me lay out several. And the first big consequence when you have big power changes like this is that they often lead to unstable, nasty international politics. And this happens through several mechanisms. One of the key mechanisms I'm sure you're all aware of uh, is that declining powers often start preventive wars. Uh, this has been uh, something that we've uh, uh, long known even before Gilpin and Copeland uh, have, have told us that. But today, I just want to call your attention to another mechanism whereby decline encourages nasty international politics, which I call opportunistic aggression against the decliner. And let's look at some of the biggest declines that have occurred in major power politics in the last 200 years and I think you'll see why it's worthwhile knowing about this. Uh, the biggest decline that occurred in the 19th century, the biggest decline that occurred, occurred 
in, by Tsarist Russia. And it occurred from 1830 to 1850. Uh, we actually have really excellent GNP data every 10 years for uh, European states at this time. Um, and notice how the decline during that 20-year period was just 10%. <laughs> okay. So again, factor that in. Oh, wait a minute. For the United States, it's uh, only 10 years and three times the size. And this is 10% in 1850. Um, and you can see, of course, France and Britain are growing, especially Britain. Well, does anybody know what happens to this group of people after 1850? Oh, please, somebody's got to oh, help me out here. What happens in the 1850s, just a few years after this? The Crimean War. Thank you. 1854, Britain and France decide to take a big bite out of the Russian Empire. And yes, it turns out to be more bloody than they're expecting and more costly than they're expecting, uh, but Russia would certainly have been far better off cutting a deal <laughs> in advance of fighting that war than losing what they did. Let's look at the biggest decline at the turn of the century. These are the biggest declines. And as you can see here, it's France and Britain that are in the biggest relative decline. I assume we don't have to talk about what happened after that point. <laughs> um, and then let's look at what happens, the biggest declines in the first half of the 20th century. And again, it's France and Britain <laughs> that are in the biggest declines. And notice how it's, of course, Germany taking advantage of those big declines. Okay? This is just simply not a good situation to be in relative decline, even if you don't start a preventable war to get out of it because others might decide to try to take advantage of you in what I call opportunistic aggression. So what, is it, what happens if we kind of go further and we look at the second half? Then we're into, of course, the Cold War. Um, and these are the big declines. These are the numbers for the Cold War. And as you can see, we really have two big periods of decline. And notice how these are not. We haven't even brought, no, no one's touched. Uh, the, only, the closest we get to 30% is right here. Notice how the American decline is really quite large compared to these that I'm showing you. Anyway, um, the first decline, 1948 to 1961, that's uh, the biggest big decline for the United States, number one. That corresponds to the nastiest period of the Cold War. Eight of the nine superpower nuclear crises are occurring <laughs> during this period. And so somebody might say, oh, wait a minute, with nuclear weapons, we don't have to worry about declines or changes because nuclear weapons solve things, and all we're going to get is just the Cuban Missile Crisis. No, we don't really want to, you know, we want to be aware <laughs> that that can still, that level of security competition is still pretty nasty and pretty dangerous. Um, then what happens is we get an even bigger decline in the 1970s for the United States, 27%, but that's, that's a period, the 1970s, where yes, there is some superpower kind of little uh, competition, but mostly a period of detente. Mostly a period of detente. And that also corresponds with a period where our rival is going down at least as much, probably more, than we are during that period. So, consequence number one is that big declines in history have corresponded with nasty international politics. Consequence number two is the coming end of unipolarity as we know it. 
Now, when we measure unipolarity, when we think about unipolarity, there's always been a question of what does it mean? Well, two basic standards have arisen uh, in the field. The first is that a unipolar world occurs when a sole superpower is so strong that no single state can oppose it. And the second, I call the global hegemon standard, where a sole superpower is so strong that it's stronger than the group of other second powers combined. And as you're going to see with some pie charts in just a second, we have quickly moved away from standard number two, and we're within a decade of standard number one, that is, of the end of the system. Now, these pie charts show you the changing balance of power as it's occurring over time. Circa the world, 1990, look at the United States. We're at 5 o'clock. Now, let's move to the year 2000. We're almost at 6 o'clock. We're almost at half of the system. And of course, once we get to half, we are the global hegemon. Not even the entire group could deal with us. Um, I often look at that and I think, gosh, you know, Dick Cheney, he must be looking at that thinking he's only a few minutes away <laughs> from, from making it, right? Um, uh, sorry, I don't, <laughs> uh, I don't really mean to, to, to insult uh, 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 Mr. Cheney. But still, uh, look at the year 2000. You can understand why people think we can do pretty much whatever we want. We want to expand uh, NATO in the 1990s. We've got this argument, that argument, this argument, that argument. You know why we can do it? Because we've got the power to do it. Okay? Now let's look at the world in 2008. Geez, we're back to 5 o'clock, actually a little bit less. And now let's look at the world circa 2013 as it starts to go out. The world is coming back into balance. The world is coming back into balance. Now, I'm not trying to tell you that balancing is destiny. I'm not making a structural argument that when the structure of the international system changes, these other powers are going to come and get us. <laughs> okay? But what I am telling you is that the days when the United States could do more or less as it pleases, we can pursue security goals, moral goals, whatever goals we want, just it's up to us, without considering the interests of the other major states in the system, I'm telling you, those days are quickly coming to an end. The third point, the third issue, is that America's declining power is creating weaknesses in our grand strategy. Now, here's the problem. America has gone into decline. The United, as that's happened, the United States has developed a serious overcommitment problem. The relationship between our resources and our commitments has become out of balance. That's what's out of balance. And this is causing the Cold War framework of America's commitments, simultaneous commitments to Europe, Asia, and the Middle East to come unglued. We've already started to see signs of this. A year ago, Russia attacked, militarily conquered half of Georgia. Georgia, the country that the Bush administration had been coddling, encouraging to kind of stick it in Putin's eye. The Russians attacked, and we did nothing. The Bush administration did nothing. This wasn't about naive Obama administration. The Bush administration did nothing, and how could we? 
with our forces pinned down in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, what if China attacked Taiwan? Would the United States really shift our air and naval forces away from Iraq and Afghanistan to defend Taiwan? I think that's highly unlikely. The reality is, with 30% of the world's product, we could imagine doing two major wars in different regions of the world simultaneously, but nearing 20%? This is nigh impossible. So, what should we do? Well, obviously, we want to try to bring our balance between, uh, a better balance between our resources and our commitments. And we really only have three choices. The first is innovation. Pour money into our economy to grow faster, grow faster than our rivals. The second is restructuring our commitments overseas. And the third is preventive action to contain the rising power of other states. Now, the first, innovation, is really quite hard to imagine over the next five years. Our current economic problems are so serious that we're already running up a tremendous amount of debt. Again, if you go to my IMF website, that website I love so much, you can easily see this. In 2007, for the United States, our net debt as a percent of our GNP in 2007, 43%. 2009, the end of this year, we're up to 71%. <laughs> Think about that. Think about that. And we haven't even, think about health care. We haven't even talked about talk, taking into account health care. Notice that hasn't actually solved our problem in the last few. Uh, so this idea that what we're about to do is take a big hunk of our GNP and throw it into innovation, man, that's just probably not happening, in the, certainly in the next four or five years. What about number three? Preventive action to contain the rising power of states. Well, as a lot of realists would tell you, this actually has been a very attractive policy for declining powers. And it might be that the United States could become increasingly attractive to preventive action over time. And lest we forget, it's just a few years ago that we did our first preventive war against Iraq, uh, something I suspect few of us would believe our country would ever have done uh, before the Bush administration uh, pushed for that. Um, and uh, I'm not saying that we would sort of start out with a preventable war against China. No, 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 no. I just mean that it's not impossible to believe that we would start to get on a confrontational track on China, uh, with China um, as we became worried about their growing power, their growing economy. However, absent provocative military adventures by China, American efforts to contain a rising China, I believe, would be doomed to failure. China's growth turns on domestic issues mainly, such as its shift in its population from rural farmers to urban industrial and information workers. Over the last 25 years, China has moved 400 million people from Category 1 to Category 2. That is the biggest source of China's growth. Now, although China's growth does depend on access to external sources of oil, uh, there's no way to exploit that vulnerability short of obviously aggressive alliances, uh, say with India, Indonesia, Taiwan, and Japan, or with clearly aggressive American military efforts to control the sea lanes. And I think efforts along these lines would be 
uh, would be likely to backfire and only exacerbate America's problems. And I think then you would actually start to trigger counterbalancing, counterbalancing. That it's not true that this is just a moral issue. Oh, no, no, we should never be aggressive for moral reasons. There's a good security reason why we shouldn't be aggressive. Because as you can see, <laughs> if we start thinking that way, bad things could happen. So if innovation is unreliable and preventive action to stop China's rise is actually counterproductive, then America's relative decline to manage it intelligently is going to require, number two, that intelligent restructuring of our overseas commitments. That is creative approaches to rectify the imbalance between our means and our ends. Now, as far as the eye can see, the Persian Gulf is likely to remain our number one priority across those three commitments, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. Um, and I think it's important that we start to think seriously about what that means. How should we rebalance our other priorities? Now, so far, America's relative decline has been precipitous. It's been extreme, but it's also been short-lived. We also need to take seriously that we really don't have a good crystal ball into the future, into the next five years, into the next 10 years. And remember, I've been through two of those decline debates in my lifetime. <laughs> I'm very well aware of, what, uh, of how tricky it is to make long-term economic forecasts, dot, dot, dot. Uh, but it's also a bad idea to just kind of sit back and just kind of ignore the problem. It's a little bit like knowing you're a firm and going bankrupt and saying, oh, well, somehow magically it'll just correct itself. So what I would do, what I would do is I would look at this in two phases. What we should do in the short term, say the first Obama administration, and what we should do in the medium term, say the second Obama administration. And in the short term, say in the first uh, next couple of years, I think Washington should think creatively and look for opportunities to make strategic trades. For instance, Russia may well do more to discourage Iran's nuclear program in return for less American military pressure near its borders. And I believe the Obama administration has been quite wise to push for this trade of our national missile, our missile defense to Europe in return for help from Russia on Iran. This is an argument that I've actually been making for about a year now, uh, and it's something that if you go to the national interest piece, you'll see the January piece. I was pushing for this. I believe this is an extremely valuable strategic trade for us because just think about this for a moment. Iran is far more important to our security okay, than what happens with missile defense in Eastern Europe. Oh, my gosh. And in fact, think about this from Russia's perspective. Russia doesn't want to start a nuclear arms competition with us in the middle of Europe. They're going, they were going down that road. They were about to station short-range nuclear missiles that were going to target the Czech Republic and Poland. But what has this deal done? This deal is a win-win or possibly a win-win for both sides. And I think that it's something that is not guaranteed to succeed, but it's really quite amazing that just in the last few weeks, uh, the Obama administration has canceled those plans uh, for Europe. Um, and in fact, just in the last two days, the Russians at the UN have been more forthcoming on, on Iran. And I think that that is an incredibly intelligent maneuver. It's not guaranteed to succeed, but it's something that we should be looking for in the next few years. Now, what about in the medium term? 
uh, say, in the second Obama administration, especially if, in fact, America's relative decline does, in fact, continue. Well, then I think America should begin to reduce its overstretched military forces that are stationed in Europe and Asia. And we should tell our friends there that if more needs to be done, if more needs to be done, they're going to have to carry more of the burden, more of the burden for that more. Uh, I'm not saying that we should abandon our allies. I'm not saying that we should just, you know, kind of walk away from the situations in Western Europe or in Asia. But the days when the United States can effectively carry the lion's share of the security commitments for those states are coming to an end, and sooner rather than later. So my main point here tonight, today, is that President Obama has not just inherited a wounded economy and a series of foreign policy predicaments. He's also facing these challenges with far less relative power. Since 2000, a seismic change has been occurring in the economic foundations of America's relative power, and America's relative power may fall further in the future. However, none of the dramatic consequences that could occur are destined to occur. I'm not telling you that, that structure is destiny. In fact, with the right grand strategy, I believe the United States could mitigate the worst of the, like, of the possible consequences, and possibly even reverse the trajectory in the future. Thank you very much. I'll take your questions. Oh, sure. Okay. Yes, sir. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And the implication is that whether you really like to do it is keep it from growing. Mm -hmm. Now, as Gail Johnson has pointed out uh, from the University of Chicago in the 1990s, more, more Chinese have been brought out of poverty than have been brought out of poverty in the whole history of the human race. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if China continues to grow the way it's growing, that's going to continue. To shorten that, I mean, basically you want to shorten those lives, which would end up having two or essentially shortening the lives of more people that were shortened by, say, Hitler, Stalin, and uh, Mao put together. Is that, is that your point of view on this? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, I think you and I are in basic agreement, and it sounds like you want me to pile on to the point that we shouldn't try to be militarily aggressive toward China. But in order to agree with you, John, or you agree with me either way, um, let me just point out that what I'm not saying is that um, uh, we're going to look at this and say, oh, yes, it's now time to declare war and kill more Chinese. I think that's probably not the way the confrontational track would play itself out. Let me give you sort of just an example. I'm sure, as you know, as probably many in the room know, over the last 10 years, China has been uh, adopting increasingly mercantilist policies on its oil. It's been, it's been forming deals with state oil companies in Sudan, in Iran, Venezuela, uh, basically to lock up supplies of oil. Uh, and there are these great economists at the University of Chicago who was at a dinner with Gary Becker uh, a couple years ago where he was saying, oh, this is just totally crazy and so forth. Why are they doing this? Because they would be paying more money than the market price and it's a global market. Well, what if oil starts to become more constrained over time? Well, then China has, of course, locked up those sources of oil, helping it with its growth, 
And do you think somebody might get mad about that in the United States? <laughs> Somehow uh, it turns out that they have easier access to oil than we do, at least in some parts of the world. I think that people could start to be upset about that. And then I think, well, you don't have to, I don't think, that, think about this as, as sort of uh, Europe circa uh, 1890, Europe circa 1895, okay? Um, it, it's not how the confrontational tracks, international politics, again, it's not quite turning quite on a dime. I mean. Um, uh, it's not quite the case. I'm not telling you that the reason to think about the preventive military actions is because, oh, um, you're going to get a Dick Cheney or a George Bush tomorrow to stand up to advocate preventive uh, military actions against China. Okay, but I do think, but, but just, look at, just look at Geithner, um, even in the Obama administration, the first thing that Geithner did was start to complain about China's manipulation of currency, and this started to trigger, you know, confrontational on economic issues, something even the Bush administration was kind of pulling back from. Um, it's simply the case that as you look at these economic balances here, and you look at uh, China's rise, one could unfortunately all too easily slip onto a confrontational track with China. Uh, let me just make one other point about sort of the, uh, uh, sort of the balance of power uh, at this point, which is um, a lot of people have thought with the kind of uh, you know, rise of China debate, oh, um, the real issue here is when China might overtake us. Right? Um, and uh, so some people have asked me, what's the date when that would happen? Uh, in the 90s, when a lot of people first looked at this, the date was something like 2050, which of course most of us will be dead and so we won't really care. Um, and now if you looked at the date, if you just run those numbers out, it turns out it's like 2035. Uh, but the real issue here for what I'm concerned about um, is uh, sort of the possibility of counterbalancing. Um, and that, for that, notice that the Soviet Union never had more than half of our GNP. And they did lots and lots of counterbalancing with that half of our GNP. Well, the date when China would have half of our GNP right now is about 2016. Now, maybe that'll happen. Maybe it'll be 2017, 2018. But it's well within our line of sight. And so uh, I think the fact is we've got to recognize that China is going to play an increasingly powerful role in the international system. And we need to start living with that reality. Um, well, really, uh, military point of view based on technology, um, American air and naval supremacy are clearly unrivaled through the globe right now. Mm -hmm. um, and if we take into consideration the long-term nature of um, fleet, air wing, and uh, weapon systems development, can we expect anything more than limited probes uh, in, the near, in the medium term, first of all? And second, based on um, your comparative cases, um, earlier examples of decline, save for perhaps World War II and the Manhattan Project, the Cold War, didn't necessarily involve the long-term technological developments that are so relevant to today's um, decline. And um, methodologically speaking, is there a way to account for qualitative technological divergences in your comparative case studies? Uh, well, there certainly would be a way to account for technological divergences. Uh, well, but I think that the, the bigger issue with, um, with, which is an excellent question, by the way, uh, the bigger issue is that it presumes that what we're facing is um, kind of a scenario, if you would, a future scenario where the two armies sort of stand toe-to-toe -to -toe and they kind of uh, decide after some large amount of mobilization that they're going to go and fight each other. Uh, say the Chinese and say uh, the United States, or say the Russians and say the United States, uh, and let's just say that that's over Iran or something like that. I don't really think that that's the scenario that we're facing. 
something happened uh, in Kosovo, a little kind of uh, example of what I'm about to describe, that a lot of people um, just don't know much about, but maybe uh, some of you will remember it. You might remember um, that um, in early June, as Kosovo was kind of winding down, the Russians decided to uh, make a, a move to the Pristina airport, to take 400 soldiers from Bosnia and put them in the Pristina airport. Then the Russians decided to back them up with hundreds of aircraft, uh, I'm sorry, hundreds of soldiers on uh, troop transport aircraft. That's the part most people don't know about. And then Wesley Clark gave the orders to shoot down the Russian aircraft. That's when he was fired. <laughs> okay. So just wait a minute. Now just slow down for a second. Okay. We have, you know, this is 1999. Okay. We have all the technological advantages you're describing. We could easily kill those Russians, four or 500 with a single shot. Okay. Do we really want to be killing Russians? Okay. I mean, they've still got thousands of nuclear weapons. Okay. They don't have to be on hair trigger for that to be a problem. And that's when, you know, everybody who was, uh, you know, decided, no, let's have a different way to solve that problem. Uh, so we never did shoot them down. Um, now, so what I'm describing here is we're, we're not really taking seriously the ways in which other major power crises have occurred in the last 30 or 40 years. We've kind of gotten used to the world with very few crises, <laughs> right? So we don't see, oh, that you could easily get unintended escalation consequences here um, and so forth. And so I just think that that's the thing that I'm much, much more concerned about. Uh, so I'd much more be, I'd be much more worried that, oh, we want to do a bombing campaign against Natanz. What's going to happen with those hundreds of Russian scientists who might be in the area? What happens if, oh, China just simply decides during the moment when we threaten to bomb Natanz to send a few hundred Chinese scientists uh, to go and inspect the facility? Are we still going to go and bomb Natanz under those circumstances? Do you see what I mean? And I'm not trying to tell you that the sky is falling exactly. I'm just trying to say why don't we try to head off some of these issues in advance and work with China on Iran, work with Russia on Iran, rather than kind of take the risks? Yes, sir. Um, with, regard, with, with regard to uh, your claims about opportunistic aggression that we face due to our relative decline, uh, do you think... Uh, Obama and his perceived uh, weakness uh, around the world, you know, bowing down uh, to, to, to the po Poland, uh, weakness in Iran, weakness in North Korea, that this, this weakness in contrast to uh, Bush's tough-talkedness, uh, tough uh, this his perceived weakness will be seen as a as a as a an avenue, an open door for uh, for this type of aggression. Yeah. And do we need to, to, to give, take a more tougher stance? Uh, thank you very much. No, I don't see that what Obama is doing is acting from weakness. What I see, he's acting from intelligence. <laughs> um, I think that it was far worse for the Bush administration to basically sell the Georgians uh, kind of a, uh, the fairy tale that they could go ahead and be uh, really kind of uppity toward Putin. Um, and you know what? They've got Uncle Sam at their back. No problem. Uncle Sam's right behind you. And then when the push comes to shove, Uncle Sam isn't there. 
I think that has been far worse for us. Um, and I think that what's happening uh, with the Obama administration, but another, another analogy here maybe is, let's assume you have a business, okay? Let's assume uh, that your business did great gangbusters here in Columbus, and so you decided to expand, uh, you know, to uh, uh, Chicago, and you were going to kind of expand into some secondary fronts. And it's still a smaller part of your business, but you did so great in Columbus that you've expanded out into Chicago. Now let's assume that the first five years you have that new expansion in Chicago, things start to go badly overall. Your whole budget is going down. So you can just decide, well, I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to be tough, and I'm not going to uh, deal with my rivals in Chicago for my secondary business because, you know, my ego's at stake, and, you know, this is going to hurt me somehow. Or you could decide, you know what? I think I might sell part or some of my business to my rivals in Chicago for the short term because, you know, that may help shore up my business overall back here in Columbus, uh, kind of buy me more time to kind of innovate my way out of this over the next five or ten years. And I think that uh, what Obama is doing is a very smart move here because um, actually he's both helping America's security in the long term and getting immediate help on Iran, which we badly need because Russia is a pivotal player there. Yes, ma'am. But um, if you take the revised estimates of World Bank, which is an inflation-adjusted GNI and BBP, it has shown that more than 300 million people have been pushed further into poverty than the stated figures of China. So what kind of growth are you talking about here when the fundamentals are not strong and there is no inclusive growth? And the second thing I have is that uh, you're talking about technological diffusion. Now, this is a big, pretty big topic from the country that I come from and all. But uh, I think, like he stated here, that we're actually shortchanging on technology because I think the next century is going to be driven by ideas and how we innovate, how are we harnessing human capabilities and all. So it's fine you're talking about diffusion of technology, but how best to leverage that technology, how best to use it, that's what matters. So I certainly agree that how, what we should be thinking about is how best to harness the technological diffusion over time. I'm not really sure we have any real disagreement. I'm just trying to show you that one of the reasons why the uh, economic balance, the balance here is changing so much so rapidly is simply that others are kept catching up technologically, and they're doing it much, much, much more rapidly than a lot of people know. Um, a lot of people, when they see these technology numbers, they see them especially controlled for G it's technology per capita, computer sales per capita, um, and they think, oh, we're way ahead of China in computer sales per capita. Is it? Well, no, no, no. That, that's using that denominator the wrong way for this purpose <laughs> because uh, it's forgetting that when China has four times our population, that means they could have four times the information workers that we could have. Um, and I think uh, having, you know, tons of smart Chinese uh, students at the University of Chicago, I certainly think they're up to it intellectually. <laughs> so, so I definitely uh, don't think there's any kind of genetic. Uh, but anyway, back to your first point. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, then please tell me. But whether the country itself is investing in R&D and in innovative technology that they can patent, which in the long term can help them get uh, 
better returns. That's what well, I if I were to show you science and technology indicators, engineering degrees, and so forth, it would paint a fairly similar picture. China has been actually catching up. There's a big question about quality difference. Is it still better to get an engineering degree uh, from MIT? Well, yes, that's true. But over time, um, notice how China is actually making tremendous, I just didn't, didn't show you those numbers, but if I did, they would paint a good picture for China in the last 20 years. Um, so if that's the main thing, that's, uh, I do think that China is just basically becoming a, uh, you know, sort of a, a real major modern economy. Now, the first point, isn't it the case that there are hundreds of millions of people in China that are in poverty? Well, that does matter, and it means that uh, there are folks who worry. Uh, Dao Yang, one of our great China scholars at the University of Chicago, uh, he does worry about sort of what's happening to the winners and losers inside of China because we've had a Tiananmen Square. You know, we've had sort of instability uh, inside of China. I'm not trying to tell you that we can make a forecast or a prediction that, oh, we're going to look out and China's not going to have any civil problems in the next 15 or 20 years. I'm not trying to tell you that at all. And that's why my policies are kind of hedged a bit. I'm trying to, to sort of give you kind of incremental policy prescriptions for how to respond to this reality rather than say, oh, well, it's obvious we should just make a 180-degree turn here or, or there. Um, but I do think that if you look at China's development for the last 30 years, my gosh, the movement of 400 million people from rural areas to urban areas, man, that has been a fundamental uh, shift in their economy, the sectors of their economy. Uh, India did not do that. Uh, and shifting their internal structures in that, to that degree, it's going to have long-term, I believe, beneficial effects ultimately for China. Yes, sir. It seems to me that another conclusion you could draw in terms of policy prescriptions is the U.S. needs to really pay attention to shoring up its alliances. Because if you look at uh, those charts yep. and you look at the ability of the United States and Europe to counterbalance Russia, yep. it can do so massively, even now. Yep. Uh, if you add in India, which is uh, significantly missing from your pie chart there, and then add Japan and the U.S. into that mix, they can significantly counterbalance China. Uh, so it would seem to me that in the years ahead, in, in the Obama administration, shoring up our alliances should be a major policy prescription as well. Yeah, just uh, your big point, I agree with you 100%. Just a little thing on India. I, I was really stunned uh, when I looked at the numbers for India. India is just about 20 years behind China. Uh, so it's not the case that India is like 8% of world's GNP. It's around 2, 2.5 two on, on these, with these measures. Um, and uh, it's, um, it's about 20 years behind. So, but let's leave the India point uh, aside because I didn't bring those numbers. I completely agree that we should be uh, working more with our European allies. Uh, and I think that what this is about, uh, what I'm trying to do is show you uh, an argument for doing that based on responding to straightforward uh, the straightforward argument of the unipolar dominant school. I'm not trying to come in with different assumptions. I'm not trying to come in and say, oh, the unipolar dominant school is wrong because they're too realist. They're not taking into account interdependence or norms. No, I'm starting with the unipolar assumption school's main arguments and trying to show you the fundamental flaws in those arguments, that they're contradictory, and that they lead to the opposite. <laughs> what, the, what the facts show is probably the opposite, in line with what you're suggesting, sir, which is a better relationship where, actually, um, you know, we have a working relationship with Europe that they get to veto 
they get to veto or near veto um, many American military policies. And that's a hard thing for Americans to accept or any country to accept. Uh, I'm not trying to tell you that we should always bow to others' concerns, but I am trying to tell you that the days where we can just, you know, say it's our way or the highway have come to an end or are coming to an end. Well, I want to use a harder word and without, I, I want to get the, the harder benchmark on the table, sir. And it's not because, again, I'm trying to tell you that I'm trying to surrender America's security to others. That's not quite it. Because notice how I'm trying to tell you this is best for us in the long term. But I am trying to say that when we talk about that concept of dialogue, I don't mean, cons I don't just mean, oh, we'll tell you after the fact and, uh, you know, we're not really going to let you in with the ATO, the airplanes, and so forth. You know, you just have to trust us on this one. Uh, no, I'm trying to tell you that on, on Iran, um, if we're really going to be involved in a bombing campaign with Iran, I think it would be much more important to have a multilateral effort here, a true multilateral effort. Um, and if not, then I'd like to wait. I have a question. It's basically about the shelf life of Mansur Olson's Logic of Collective Action. Oh, excellent. I love it, that book. Um, thank you. Uh, the seventh implication that he cites is that distributional coalitions slow down the society's capacity wow. to adopt new technologies and to reallocate resources in response to changing conditions and thereby reduce the rate of economic growth. Um, my question, and as you know, there's much, there are others too. Yep. And my question really is, is that still pertinent? And could, could addressing distributional coalitions on the domestic side be played on to deal with this as well? Absolutely excellent. Usually I'm the one that has to bring up Olson here. <laughs> uh, that is absolutely fantastic. Um, there's a huge question here with uh, what happened to Britain? Um, uh, at the turn of the century, and why did Britain, this kind of uh, innovative juggernaut, peter out uh, on the innovation front? Um, and actually, there are a number of folks who have cut into this, uh, but Olson probably has what I think is, if not the best, certainly one of the best answers, and it's the one I go to, which is he shows how, at the turn of the century, the special interests in Britain, and not just aristocratic families that own the businesses, but even the heads of labor unions, so I don't mean special interests just in the handful of, you know, three rich people, but special interests across British society effectively calcified British society and headed it towards stagnation for t several generations. And that calcification really had detrimental effects because that process that Schumpeter once called creative destruction, where you kind of burn half of the economic forest down in order to build it up again twice as high, <laughs> could not actually occur uh, in, in Britain during that period. Um, and the truth is, sir, uh, I certainly worry about that here in the United States. And I'm not going to stand here and tell you I know, you know, sort of the best answer to that now about what's happening with that process. Uh, I've actually started to look into it for a bit uh, because I am worried about that. I, don't, I worry much, much more about the calcification of economic interests in the United States than I do about the Israel lobby. Can I still ask the book? What's that? I would not toss that book. That's, a, that's, that's one of the, uh, yeah, he's actually one of the guys. I wish we had more economists like Mansur Olson. <laughs>
Yeah, yes, yes, sir. I have uh, I have two questions. The first uh, 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 about the U.S.-China relations. I, I come from chi China, and uh, I think I'm. I think uh, uh, one is that you show from 1990 to not current Chinese uh, economic size grew from 2% to roughly 8%. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So how did, I mean, a lot of realists uh, already predict that the U.S.-China relations could be much worse. So it looks like currently, current relations, U.S.-China relations is, I, I could say, surprisingly stable, I mean, compared to previous yeah. predictions. What do you think about some of the reasons the second point is that well, whether... No, let's hold on the first point. Now I'll let you come back to the second one. Um, uh, I, I am a realist, but I am uh, not a structural realist. Uh, so what's happened is that we've had a number of structural realists who have predicted that uh, basically structure produces destiny, that structure produces point predictions. Uh, maybe we can't get ex the exact years right, but we can get pretty close to um, kind of a point prediction in the nature of competition and conflict based simply on structural concerns with the balance of power. I just simply don't agree with that. If you looked at my soft balancing, or if you look at some of my previous work, you'd see I very much believe uh, that uh, the intentions, the signals that states send about their intentions are hugely, hugely important. Um, I very much believe that uh, this is one of the major problems uh, that we face right now, which is that uh, uh, we are a declining power, and, but we're a declining big power. <laughs> um, and so our intentions and how others perceive our intentions is terribly important. And I think that others, others could also overreact to our intentions. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised at all um, to see that, uh, uh, say, China would get uh, worried about America's intentions much sooner than any Americans would. Um, and just look at the opinion polls on, um, uh, on Iraq. If you look at American opinion polls, 75% of, Ameri of Americans think we did the Iraq war because of Saddam Hussein. If you look at international opinion polls, 75% of the rest of the world <laughs> thinks we did it for oil. <laughs> so what's happening here is that I believe intentions and perceptions of intentions are crucial, um, and that's why you haven't seen sort of an automatic counterbalancing against the United States. Um, that's why other powers aren't axiomatically rising to counterbalance us. But if we're not, uh, you know, intelligent about managing our relations with the rest of the world, um, it's also possible that balancing could come much faster than we might be, we might be surprised. Okay. The, the, my second question, actually, following following your answers about whether intentions or particular like perception mm -hmm. images uh, matters, because like uh, in in the China China's case, according to my observations, is that the Chinese self-understanding of its position is 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 different from like just the size of the economy. For example, according to my interaction with some of Chinese IR scholars or officials, they they don't think China will soon become like the number two or even number one in the future I and mean, the near future. So there's a huge gap between what your actual your your size of the uh, of your e economy as as well as your your own self definition of your own role. So. The implication for U.S.-China relations is that, what, uh, on the one hand, the U.S. worry about the China's growing power. On the other hand, I see the other uh, point, problem is that maybe it's um, China don't pay its 
how to say, it's widely expected rose to some extent because China say, okay, uh, nowadays uh, during the financial crisis, China say, oh, we are uh, emphasizing China is just a developing country. Even the size of the economy is, is quite large. Well, I, I think um, that you put your finger on an excellent topic. Uh, if I were, you know, sort of giving advice for, you know, what are great topics uh, to think about, the gap between a state's changing power position and changing self-image, I believe, is an, very much an understudied. Uh, we have um, realists who will sort of kind of slap on an argument, just almost at a one-liner, that rising power creates rising ambition. Where's the book on that? <laughs> okay, where's the 200, where, where's not just the, the 400 page book, the 200 page book, where's the nice 30 page IS piece on that? <laughs> okay, and now you've made the point, well wait a minute, China's lagging, its power is growing, but its self-image is lagging. Notice how on the flip side, we have declining powers whose self-image is also lagging. Now what I've been studying are the declining power side. So I've been spending some time looking at how certain declining powers or powers that thought they were in decline have been looking at their kind of aspiration levels. And I've been really surprised to see how sticky those earlier aspiration levels are. That is, it's not this Bayesian updating process I would have, you know, kind of expected perhaps. You know, the strategic rational calculations kind of break down. There's a lot of kind of uh, sand in the, in, the <laughs> in the system here. Uh, there are gaps. I'm not trying to tell you the aspiration levels never kind of shift downward, but they certainly don't shift downward very fast. And just think about our positions right now. You know, sort of the question here about, you know, uh, we're kind of cutting loose from Poland as if somehow Poland, the extension of Poland, should be our aspiration level. Now, wait a minute. We've just, we, that was as we were rising, our ambitions increased, right? Now we're declining. Doesn't that mean our ambitions should kind of be a little more moderate? <laughs> well, I want to pull this close before the students all have to leave and go sure. to class at 1.30. So okay. I want to thank you very much for a very provocative talk. I know Bob will be here for a little while longer. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.